Many practicing physicians believe that performance measurement in healthcare has spiraled out of control, forcing them to waste precious time on measuring unimportant aspects of care with detrimental effects on their patients as well as on their own work satisfaction. Nevertheless, in order to improve the quality of care, one first has to measure it somehow. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Christine Castle, President and CEO of the National Quality Forum. Dr. Castle has co-authored a perspective article on getting more performance out of performance measurement. Dr. Castle, in your perspective article, you note that measurement and payment reform systems have to start somewhere and can then be improved over time, but you also recognize the problems with using the wrong measures and the risk of measurement fatigue. So how do you decide when you've got enough evidence that something's a good enough measure to implement, and how do you decide when to cut your losses and scrap a measure? Well, Steve, this whole issue, I think, really needs to come to the attention of both measurement science, and there is a world of measurement science, as well as policymakers, because the use of measures has been expanding precisely because of two fundamental forces. One is the drive towards more accountable care, either in terms of paying for value instead of paying for volume, and also accountability in terms of the consumer's right to have more information about quality of care. And I think both of those things are fundamentally sound principles that we need to know how we're performing so that we can reward value and so that consumers can make wise choices. And we're working with a portfolio of measures that are the best we have at the moment. But we need to have better measures. So when you say we, there's a whole constellation of people involved in selecting how measures are used. The National Quality Forum endorses the best-in-breed measures that are both reliable and feasible and usable, but not everybody uses the NQF-endorsed measures. So a lot of what the burden is about is that every different health plan and many different state programs as well as federal programs use lots of different measures for more or less the same kinds of conditions. So that's one thing that we call for in our article, that there needs to be much more attention to alignment towards getting people to use one set of measures that would only have to be collected and reported once. But the other thing is that we give some examples in our paper of times when measures have really resulted in progress. As you pointed out, the whole point of measurement outside of accountability is to help providers know what they need to do to improve. And so something like a readmission measure we point to or the early elective delivery measure really gave an anchor that drove enormous improvement. We also point to times when measures actually backfired because they had certain attributes that didn't work so well, like the time to antibiotic measure that we talk about. And NQF withdrew their endorsement from that measure because it was leading people to use antibiotics and patients who didn't even have pneumonia. And so you have to take into account the real clinical validity. So that's one thing that's going to continue to improve is our ability to take measures out of circulation that have either topped out or that backfire one way or another. But we need to do that, we as a community of the people who do accreditation, the Joint Commission, the NCQA, all 
of the people who pay for care and demand measures. So that's a big universe, and it's going to take some time to get groups like that together to agree on more of a parsimonious approach. You talk in your article about what, from your own experience, makes a good performance measure with criteria that range from being able to easily capture the data to being associated with an identifiable policy change that can correct poor performance. Are there some lessons that stand out in your mind that you think we've learned repeatedly that make a successful performance measurement? Indeed, and I think the example of the early elective delivery measure is one of the best. In a way, because it was agreed upon measure that everybody used. So the Joint Commission used it, and the American College of OBGYN, and the board used it. And it was very clear, and it could be implemented by the hospitals by saying that if a patient who had no complications was being scheduled for an early induction, that the surgeon had to give a reason why. And that's a very concrete example. But not everything, as As you and your readers know, not everything in medicine is quite as tidy and concrete and precise as that. And actually, Beth McGlynn and Eve Kerr and Eric Schneider in their article talk about how what we really need is measures that cover the complexity of chronic conditions and of people who have multiple conditions and really need personalized care. And they lay out a vision of a world where electronic clinical data will be available at our fingertips to actually personalize the measure profile for this patient that really reflects a patient that then can benchmark patients who are like that person around the country. Right now, the information technology that people are using just doesn't allow us to do anything that sophisticated in that real time. But ideally, that would get us to a place where we would know much more quickly if a measure has unintended side effects and be able to pull it much more quickly. And on that flip side, are there glaring errors in performance measurement efforts that you would warn people to avoid? Well, one of the things that I've noticed as a geriatrician and someone who in my clinical life cared for many very elderly and frail older people with complex conditions is that if you put too much emphasis on a single clinical condition, like let's say blood sugar for diabetes or blood pressure, which is right now very controversial, then the patient who has six other problems, they have disabling arthritis and advanced Alzheimer's disease and a whole range of other conditions, it may be that controlling the blood pressure and the blood sugar not only are not the most important thing for that patient, but actually could be harmful to that patient. So that's why I think the vision that McGlynn lays out is really where I think we ought to be going. And meanwhile, though, I think we ought to be very cautious. Right now, people need to realize that the measures are only as good as the evidence, and we need more evidence in a lot of these areas. Even around something where we thought we knew what the guidelines were, blood pressure, for example. As you know, right now, there's disagreement about that in the cardiology community and in the hypertension community. So the people who develop and use measures of blood pressure control, which is a pretty basic preventive measure used in HEDIS and a number of other things, that then becomes problematic, knowing exactly what 
levels you should be shooting for, or in the case of lipid management, whether you should even be shooting for a level at all. And now with the new trials that just came out last week, I think that we're going to be having another debate about that. So the issue of monitoring the evidence and staying on top of the evidence is probably the most important and in some ways most costly aspect of the whole measurement enterprise is making sure that we don't keep using measures when there's evidence that this is no longer a valid endpoint. How essential is pay for performance to quality improvement? You talk in your article about measures that succeed because they're measuring something that's the right thing to do clinically. And in a case like that, do we still need to provide financial incentives to do those things? Well, that's a very, very big question that you're asking. And it's a question that I think economists are asking as well. As the nation over the last decade has moved much more aggressively, both in the private sector and the public sector, to these value-based purchasing models, there are people who are questioning whether it's really working as well as people had hoped. I don't have an opinion about that. I don't think the evidence is real strong one way or the other yet. But I do know that within clinical systems like unified group practices, for example, at Kaiser or Geisinger or Mayo or places where the physicians practice with lots of data about their performance and they see within their own practice what each other are doing, and how their own performance benchmarks against their colleagues, then they drive improvement. And those people are all on salary. They don't actually stand to reward from that, but they are motivated by professionalism. And to my mind, that's really the best kind of use of measures is to have intense, clinically valid information that the physicians really trust that benchmarks them against their peers And in every instance where that's been done, it drives improvement. In another perspective article, Sequist and Tavares focus on performance measures at the community level rather than the level of hospitals or or individual physicians. Does that strike you as a promising direction to be heading in? Oh, it does indeed. I found that proposal fascinating. And in fact, the National Quality Forum has been doing a fair amount of work lately on this issue of population-based measures and What are good measures of a healthy community, for example? And part of this is because, at least conceptually, the idea of an accountable care organization is that it has some accountability for the health of the community. But it's also true, just from a dollars and cents perspective, that if the communities are really helping people be healthier, get their flu shots, deal with their clinical issues and not have to go to the hospital and not have to use the emergency room, then actually it's better for the hospital or the ACO if the community takes care of a lot of those things. And the workplace, I mean, the community includes the workplace as well. This gets back to the payment question that right now, I think their idea is a very exciting one It gets at one of the questions, though, that keeps coming up, for example, with readmission measures or with cost of care measures, where the hospital will say, well, you can't attribute everything that goes on with this patient to us because we can't control their lives out in the community. And I think that's a realistic question. Now, it turns out that hospitals have developed outreach into communities, and they really are helping people be healthier. And I think they're being rewarded for that in these new ACO models. 
but we haven't yet really transitioned to a time where the payment system really links the hospital, the medical practice, and the community in a way that people have shared resources to really invest in this. But if we got to a place where we could figure out how to do that, I think the Sequest and Tavares article shows us that we actually could develop a measurement framework that would support it. Speaking of feasibility, a final question. You mentioned the article by McGlynn and colleagues who are looking at an approach that incorporates both the complexity of patients' health conditions and their treatment preferences into performance measures. How feasible do you think an approach such as that would be? I think it would be feasible if we had the data sources. So it's interesting. The Sequence and Tavares article, we actually have a lot of that data sources. What we don't have is the payment and delivery model that would make it work. But in the McGlynn article, we don't have the data sources to really link together the complexity of the information about each individual patient, particularly the patients with multiple conditions, and their preferences. We just don't have data sets that allow us to look at that. It's not to say that we couldn't have it in this day of mobile phones and cloud-based data, and we really ought to be able to imagine within the next five to ten years being able to get to the place that these authors imagine. But it will take a lot of change in how we think about electronic records and how we think about getting information from patients about their preferences. Thank you, Dr. Castle.